Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be examining the concept of non-locality. With me is physicist Dr. Edward Close, who is the author of Transcendental Physics. He is also co-author with Dr. Vernon Nepi of Reality Begins with Consciousness. And he has recently written a chapter published in a brand new anthology titled Is Consciousness Primary, edited by Gary Schwartz and Marjorie Woolicott. The title of that chapter is The Mathematical Unification of Time, Space, Matter, Energy, and Consciousness. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, uh, Jeff. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate your inviting me and making me feel so at home. Well, I'm delighted uh, to be with you here in Albuquerque, and um, let's talk about non-locality. I think many people have heard the term a lot. It's become a buzzword. Yeah. Uh, many people use it interchangeably with what used to be known as clairvoyance, telepathy, psi, psychic functioning, uh, they like to talk about non-local consciousness, but to my understanding, the term actually originated within the context of uh, theoretical physics. Yes, that's true, and most mainstream physicists don't like the uh, it being applied to things like consciousness or uh, especially to things like clairvoyance or that sort of thing, just because of they don't really uh, think those things exist many times. But um, it's kind of interesting because to me it's what language does is uh, enable us to communicate, but at the same time you can almost take any given word and realize that it hides as much as it explains. Mm -hmm. And many words that come from science and filter out into the community of ordinary people uh, is picked up and used in ways that make scientists shudder sometimes. Uh, An example would be even the speed of light is constant. That sounds so simple, and everybody thinks, oh, yeah, that means like a constant, if an airplane's flying across the country and it reaches a certain speed and it stays there, it travels at a constant speed. And of course, that's not what it means at all. Mm. It's a much more deep and complex concept than that. And non-locality, I think, is the same <clears throat> sort of thing, and it originated, I believe, with the um, EPR paradox and the Uh, Copenhagen interpretation to explain that paradox. I I would have, in in my recollection, the concept where I first encountered, I think the concept of non-locality would have been, actually, I think I wrote about it in 1975 in my Mm -hmm. book, The Roots of Consciousness, in reference to Minkowski diagrams of the light cone. Uh 
Yeah. And showing that anything uh, outside of the light cone, in other words, uh, something so far away that uh, it couldn't be uh, accessible by the uh, through the speed of light in any given time frame, that would be, if there were communication with that realm, that would be non-local. Yeah. Yeah, I think the first time I came across it was reading in uh, reading a paper by John Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, and he brought up the term. And um, like a lot of uh, things in our language, English may be more than most, but in any language, um, gets interpreted through the lens of the consciousness, if you will, of the individual yeah. who uses the word. And <clears throat> in his case, um, he was talking about the difference between um something that is a local phenomenon or um, or a uh, localized object or event yeah. as opposed to one that uh <clears throat> is more uh widespread or happens over a distance and uh it was brought up in uh, reference to trying to explain quantum uh, weirdness. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of entanglement, that the, these connections yes. seem to be instantaneous, faster than the speed of light. Uh, in yeah. other words, outside the light cone yet again. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah and that that uh, is counterintuitive to uh, uh, relativistic uh, physicists. Now, I have heard people in parapsychology use the term, and what, what they seem to mean by it, when I push them <coughs> on it, they say, oh, it has nothing to do with anything in physics. It simply means a- awareness of something non-local outside of your own brain, outside of yeah. your skull. Yes. If you can pick up information from uh, the next room that you shouldn't know, that would be non-local. Yeah. Well, I like to think of it... Um, uh, this way, I read once, and I think it was a psychologist mm-hmm. uh, who wrote this and said, of course, we can only think about one thing at a time because we focus. Um, and I have a problem with that. Yeah, so would my wife have a problem <laughs> with that, who's always multitasking. Yeah, yeah. And you can uh, dispute that just by thinking, I can feel my feet and my shoes. I can feel the soles of my feet and the top of my head and the hair on my head at the same time. I can uh, very vividly picture uh, uh, the Great Pyramid, for uh, someplace that I've been, uh, as if almost I were there. I can remember the smells and the scenery and everything. And at the same time, know that I'm sitting here in this chair in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, in a sense, that's a kind of a non-locality. So it's very understandable why people like to associate that term with consciousness mm-hmm. because the function of consciousness is to be aware, but focus means to draw distinctions and focus on some part of that awareness, but it doesn't mean you're totally unaware of something else that's going on at the same time. So the we're capable of a lot more than we normally do, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't have a problem with, with that because, uh, as we've discussed before, but I need to say in this context, that I've actually had out-of-body experiences 
that have been verified by after the experience finding physical objects and mm -hmm. things like that that were viewed from that out-of-the-body uh, position. And uh, also uh, in uh, a book that you're familiar with, The Autobiography of a Yogi by uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, he talks about his first in, in this life uh, experience of cosmic consciousness when his guru struck him lightly over the heart and immediately had a global awareness. He could see not only see everything around him without turning his head, he could see a cow passing on the other side of a wall, and he could see her just like he's, he's seeing her with his physical eyes, but even when, he, when the cow went past the gate, he could still see the cow and is aware of it, mm -hmm. and of people walking and so forth. This is hard for us to imagine because we train ourselves to focus. So most of our experience has to do with locality. Mm -hmm. So that's sure. why non-locality is kind of uh, hard to grasp. Well, you know, it seems to me that when it comes to an experience like that, you could call it cosmic consciousness, you could call it clairvoyance, you could say he had a moment of psychic insight, but parapsychologists in particular are very sensitive to the uh, sociological impact of various words. And, sure. Uh, because a word uh, like psychic often turns a certain segment of the population off, they associate the word psychic with fraud and chicanery of all sorts. Uh, so parapsychologists periodically are always looking for new words, like it's yes. no longer clairvoyance, now it's remote viewing. Yeah. Uh, and it's mostly just a, a, a way to get past people's defenses. Yeah, yeah, and that's understandable because it hasn't been that long that uh, even psychology, not parapsychology, was considered a kind of a fringe, uh, non-scientific idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's natural for people to try to convince other people that they know what they're doing. Yeah. And if you have scientific-sounding language that uh, people are, are not immediately uh, put off by, uh, maybe that's helpful. I I'm inclined to think otherwise. I'm inclined to think that <laughs> some of the original terms, for better or worse, uh, uh, might as well stick with them because sooner or later those objections that people have are going to come up anyway. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very definite that... Um, that uh, every word has many meanings. Uh, I think that's really true more in English than it is in most mm -hmm. other pure languages because English is basically a Germanic ang uh, language that's been had a lot of influx of uh, Latin or Romance languages and, and uh, Greek and Latin mm -hmm. uh, so that it's a it's a kind of a mixed up language, and words can mean kind of what you want them to work, to mean. But sometimes you almost have to invent a new word. But when you do, then it's still going to be viewed by people through the lens of their particular understanding mm -hmm. of what it evokes in their mind mm -hmm. when they hear that word. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I would argue that's probably, you could take almost any word 
And it would be different if you have a room full of people, you'd have a room full of interpretations of that word. Well, I'm inclined to think that the use of the term non-locality in physics, mm-hmm. it may actually be very appropriate for describing uh, consciousness. And uh, let's explore in a deeper sense exactly what the physicists are getting at when they say non-locality. Because I, I suspect uh, if you probe deeply enough, we would have a whole different picture of space and time altogether. Yes, and that, that, I, I make that connection too, because I think what John Bell was think, talking about and what writers like Michael Talbot and uh, good perceptive uh, scientific writers uh, are getting at is things that we find in uh, quantum experiments and so forth, like the... Uh, um, re- reciprocity between two particles that uh, uh, seem to communicate over distance, like you mentioned. We have to call that something, and in classical physics, there just wasn't a word for it. But there was a word called local phenomena, something that happens only in one specific spot. So this seemed to be the opposite of that, mm. or wasn't that. It was something else, so we call it non-locality. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think what physicists are getting at, <clears throat> and they get very upset if you, many of them do, if you relate it to consciousness, because they'll tell you it has nothing to do with it. It is simply to, un- to understand and explain some empirical phenomena that occur when you're dealing with uh, quantum, at the quantum level, mm-hmm. with things like particles and waves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, uh, as you know, uh, my research partner, Dr. Neppy, is very fond of neolo- neologisms. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, in effect, uh, the English language is full of them, because we're inv- inventing them all the time. When I was in high school, Certain words, uh, you just were not words. They weren't in the dictionary, and you weren't supposed to use them. Mm-hmm. Those same words now are in the dictionary. Some of them, like <laughs> like ain't uh, right. The dictionary changes all the time. Yes. I used to when I was a kid, people would say ain't ain't a word because ain't ain't in the dictionary. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then I looked in the dictionary, and it was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it keeps it keeps being updated. Yeah. And non-locality is one of those words that uh, originated in in the scientific community to explain physical phenomena Mm -hmm. that didn't seem to fit into the picture of something you could call uh, mechanistic with a local cause-and-effect relationship. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, it's the first um, admission of the physicalist that there is something else going on that cannot necessarily be explained with a physical mechanism. Mm -hmm. Well, now, we had a previous conversation talking about the constancy of the speed of light. We pointed out in that discussion that at the speed of light, time actually stops. 
Yeah. So that a photon could travel from one end of the universe to the other, which we would measure as about 13.8 billion light years, yeah. and no time would have passed at all right. if, if you're on the photon. If, if you're riding on the photon. So, if you can tra- travel a distance in no time, that would imply by the normal formulas of uh, speed and measurement that no distance had actually been traversed. Yes, and actually the equations of relativity uh, bear that out because what happens is that the the transformation equation, the Lorentz transformation equations, actually say that as the relative speed uh, increases, uh, distance shrinks from a, an observer who is at rest relative to the object that's traveling, mm-hmm. and time slows down. For uh, and so this this is really the amazing. Um, revelation that Einstein made. The the equations were there before, but nobody had looked into this as deeply as he had to understand that it actually meant that there was a change going on in physical measurement, which is very usually thought of as very uh, concrete and solid, that actually things like time and space, and this is what brought people like uh, Michael Talbot and and, uh, John Bell to say we're going to have to rethink what we, how we explain and understand space and time. And and that seems pretty fundamental. And and not only that, in one of our other discussions, you pointed out to me, I think it was Max Planck, the founder of quantum mechanics, who, who questioned whether matter even existed. Yes, yes. The famous quote is uh, that as a man uh, who spent his life doing the most hard-nosed type of of science studying matter, uh, I can tell you this, there's no matter as such. That uh, and this, if you think of it in one way, this is kind of what we see when we start looking at matter. We find out that atoms are mostly empty space, or we think that it is. Uh, comparatively, most of the of the volume of the atom is not taken up by the particles that we discover that are in there, like the electron and the proton and the neutron. So uh, something has to to explain this, and uh, uh, but uh, that we have the intrinsic sort of uh, or built-in idea that time and space are kind of a backdrop against which everything happens, mm-hmm. and that was that was totally blown away by the theory of relativity, the old idea of a universal ether in which everything moved, uh, they had to have that kind of concept at one point because every form of energy that we could measure had some sort of, of a, uh, a medium through which it moved. Yep. Sound moves through air and so forth. But light travels um, uh, billions of miles, um, hundreds and thousands of light years. Uh, it through what is apparently, in, ter- in terms of matter, 
empty space. There's no matter in a lot of that, and yet it somehow travels. So what is a medium? They thought, well, there has to be a universal medium. Well, Einstein said no. And that's one step forward in his little appendix to, to his book on relativity. He said space and time have no existence of their own. They only exist as measurements within a field of mass and energy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, what um, what we're doing in, in our model, uh, the, the NEPI-CLOSE model, is including consciousness in, in our model of reality, uh, which we think it's time to do that, and that we think it needs to be done. Otherwise, science is sort of uh, boxed in by not really being able to study the kind of phenomena that we're talking about, except in in terms of statistical analysis to prove that it actually does exist. It actually does happen. But we need a, a theoretical framework within, within which that fits. Mm-hmm. And the current materialistic mainstream uh, science doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. The framework is too small. Well, one of the premises, I think, of science in general is is that the universe is understandable. It's possible that we could understand it, that there, some people say it this way, we live in a rational universe. And yet, you and I have just described how, according to the theory of relativity, uh, if I'm a person riding on a photon traveling across the universe, 13.8 billion light years, I can do that instantly from my point of view. From the point of view of uh, an observer, let's say on the Earth, it would have taken 13.8 billion years. So right. th- that to me seems uh, to defy rationality. It seems completely paradoxical. Yes, it does, because in our experience, we're not dealing with extremes very often. We're sort of in the middle, yeah. and um, the velocities we deal with are very limited, very slow compared to the speed of light. The fastest uh, jet on the planet doesn't even, uh, you know, doesn't even approach a, a small fraction of the speed of light. Mm-hmm. But, but the experiments have been confirmed. We know that, let's say, on a rocket ship traveling, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 miles an hour, uh, time actually does uh, dilate. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, that's been uh, uh, verified several times and uh, verifies what Einstein was saying, that space and time are relative mm-hmm. to the motion and the mass and, and the energy of the system within which it's observed. So um, the the next step, it seems to me, is uh, to bring in something called Gordel's uh, incompleteness theorem. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that I think eventually will get into common parlance where people will talk about this as if they know what it is just the way they do now about relativity and the speed of light being constant. And And (laughs) non-locality. Non-locality, exactly. Uh, But it does explain a lot, because Mm -hmm. what he proved in, I think, 1933 uh, was that in any consistent logical system, 
that you can make meaningful statements or ask meaningful questions that cannot be uh, uh, answered, proved or disproved in terms of logic within that system within which it was stated. Now, it, when that when that first happened, it was it was a shock to mathematicians in particular. David Hilbert, the, who was like the leading mathematician at the time, mm-hmm. probably just about had a heart attack because his whole focus was to develop an axiomatic system within which any hypothesis could be proved to be either true, false, or meaningless. He, he developed the concept we know of as Hilbert space, the yes. idea of a, a space with infinitely many dimensions. Yes, and many people confuse um, our nine-dimensional model. They say, oh, well, then you're, you're talking about Hilbert, you're creating Hilbert space. And um, that's not quite the case because we're very specific about what we define as a dimension. Mm. In Hilbert's view, anything that could have a variable assigned to it and could be measured in any way was could be a dimension mm-hmm. in Hilbert space. Yeah. In our conception, the only thing that in the physical world, in the what most people consider the real world, or even the mental world, the only thing that can be called um, a dimension is something that has a variable of extent or extension in some way. So we're looking at the difference between a mathematical dimension and a spatial dimension. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, uh, but with one difference, our dimensions when we go past the two dimensions, or sorry, three dimensions of normal space that everybody kind of agrees on, and says, oh, we're all aware of three dimensions of height, width, and depth. Uh, when we go beyond those three, they, the dimensional the dimensions become much more subtle, mm. more complex. And the first one is time, and that was introduced really by Hermann Minkowski, who you mentioned. Uh, Einstein at first, uh, you may know this, at first he kind of rejected the idea, and he said that's unnecessary mathematical sophistication, mm. and uh, kind of rejected it. But in time, uh, over a few years, a couple of years, I think, he came to realize that the only way he could really develop the field equation, the general uh, field equation, would be to do it in that kind of a context of dimensionality. Mm-hmm. So what we believe, uh, what we think we know anyway, meaning Dr. Neppy and myself, is that we're extending that kind of thinking and other people started doing it, uh, uh, Klein and Calusa. And, if if uh, I recall correctly, Klein and Calusa developed a five-dimensional model, yeah. which proved, as far as I know, uh, as a layperson, uh, to be necessary in order to unify electricity and magnetism. Yes, they were able to derive uh, the Maxwell equations of of electromagnetism from a five-dimensional model rather rather elegantly. And um, uh, then there was uh, also a fellow uh, uh, Finnish, I believe, named Nordstrom. Nordstrom was doing the same thing, a five-dimensional model. He didn't get 
uh, credit for it. He was doing this actually about the same time Einstein was working, was introducing the theory of relativity. Nordstrom was had already developed a five-dimensional model, uh, but it didn't get noticed because uh, Finland was under the under uh, Russia at the time, under the domination of, of Russia, and uh, he wasn't allowed to to publish in anything except Russian, but he finally got out and published it in Swedish, but it never got translated into English until much later, so he didn't get credit. I see. Um, so there were several people working that way, and then mainstream science kind of got derailed from that, and it, it must have been kind of uh, disconcerting to to Albert Einstein and Max Planck because they were great friends and they were working together and uh, they were believing that uh, they would soon see quantum physics and uh, relativity um, integrated into a common uh, theory. And of course Einstein brought up the whole idea that began to be called a theory of everything uh, by saying, let's see if we can't come up with an equation that will include all of the f- known forces of, of nature. Um, In other words, if, if I understand what you're saying, there are four forces, mm-hmm. uh, gravity, electromagnetism, and the weak and strong uh, nuclear forces. forces yeah. The theory of relativity accounts for gravity. Mm-hmm. Quantum mechanics accounts for the other three. Right. And uh, they uh, unification would entail one model that could explain all four. Yes. And, of course, um, being optimistic, um, Dr. Nepi and I, uh, first of all, our model does that, mm-hmm. in our opinion. Yeah. And we feel that, that for that reason, it'll eventually be, uh, be accepted. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a lot of resistance to it because uh, most of the people in, in physics and mainstream theoretical physics have been trained and brought up yeah, whether they realize it or not, where the metaphysical basis, and every logical system has a metaphysical basis, mm-hmm. whether you've defined it or not, and their metaphysical basis is one of materialism, that the only real things are concrete things like matter and energy. Yeah. Even in spite of the fact that their, their uh, most forward-looking research says that matter isn't what we think it is, and time and space are not what we think they are. And I imagine if we look closely, we'd have trouble with energy as well. Yes. Yes, and uh, uh, this is kind of reflected in in the view of dark matter and dark energy when uh, a scientist being interviewed said, uh, well, of course, it's, it's some kind of matter and energy. We just don't know what kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something we haven't encountered before. Um, in, in my opinion, that uh, just reflects the box that that individual thinks in. Mm-hmm. And uh, back to the Gradel uh, incompleteness theorem. Yeah. If you have, a, a, if you've shown that the the model that we have. Or the understanding that we have, the consistent logical explanation of some part of the universe, 
and we come up with, we can and do come up with statements or questions that can't be answered within that. Uh, the first thought people had, uh, David Hilbert himself, I think, thought, this is horrible, this is terrible, because it means we can't ever really answer that question. Even if you have a scheme with infinitely many dimensions, it's, yeah, it's, it's still, still inadequate. Still won't do it. Yeah. And um, uh, actually, after the dust kind of died down in the theoretical math and physics community, uh, a few began to realize that it wasn't the end of the world, and that, in fact, that very same statement, whatever it might be, could be proved in a different, in a more comprehensive um, uh, logical system. Mm -hmm. And the only way you get a more comprehensive logical system or an expanded system that is more more uh, comprehensive is to go back and look at your a priori assumptions, the axioms upon which you build it. Now, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but I think sometimes that takes us in the wrong direction mm. because uh, in looking at Euclid's uh, uh, geometry, one of the things they liked to do, mathematicians, was to say, well, the axiom, the axiom that uh, two parallel lines never meet, let's just say we... we uh, we change that mm -hmm. and say that they they do meet, then we have a whole different system right. called non non Euclidean uh, geometry, which has turned out to be very important, very important and useful uh, in a descriptive way, but not in a uh, explanatory way, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion, it leads us to. Uh, thinking of certain conceptual constructions as if they were as real as uh, physical data. Yeah. And that's not always true. And uh, within TDVP, the math that we use, which we call the calculus of dimensional distinctions, there actually turns out to be a way to prove or disprove whether something is both conceptual and existing in the physical world or not. And that is, I mention that because it's of extreme importance. When we, when I first said this and uh, uh, Vernon was talking with, uh, with a, a, a mathematical physicist in, in uh, England, he said that that can't be right. There's no way you can prove a high or disprove a uh, whether a uh, hypothesis is true or not, just purely with mathematics, you have to have empirical evidence. The missing piece is that you develop your mathematics by tying it to empirical knowledge, and ours is tied to the to the electron. Well, now isn't it the case uh, with regard to uh, Euclidean geometry that? Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity posits a non-Euclidean world in which yeah. space, uh, space and time, but certainly space, is curved. Yes. Uh, and uh, in fact, this leads to the idea, and Einstein expressed this, that if you, if you have a four-dimensional reality, the Minkowski reality with uh, three dimensions of space and one of time, if you define a a line 
a straight line within a four-dimensional reality, and you follow that straight line uh, as far as it will take you, at some point it'll bring you right back to the very exact point where you started. Not just in space, but in time as well. I've heard people say, put it this way, that if you could look and see forever, you'd end up seeing the back, the back of your, of your own head. head. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that was that was the idea. Uh-huh. Now, to stretch this out of the box a little further, if there are actually nine dimensions, finite dimensions. Mm-hmm. Which is postulated in, in your our, work with Dr. Nepi. Yes. TDVP. Yes. And if the next three after the first three of space, and it turns out mathematically that this triadic thing is very important, Mm -hmm. and it even fits with what we know about number theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of of quantum theory, we can tie it to integers, and so it it gives us a whole new mathematics and a whole way of looking. And uh, the second three uh, dimensions or much more subtle and difficult to understand than the first three, and we only see one point, and we only experience one point in that, and that's a, I would call it a quantum of time, uh, which we always are in, and we postulate that it's on a line by remembering past events and projecting what we think will probably happen in the future. This defines a timeline. Well, if this line is different, my line is different than yours, and we can talk about the reasons for that. Um, then, in a sense, we've moved into a uh, a kind of non-locality mm-hmm. in that uh, we've defined a plane of time yep. with two different timelines, and many more. So we might say, for example, that your timeline and my timeline are at this moment intersecting on a yes. plane because we're uh, communicating together. Yes, mm-hmm. but tomorrow they'll separate again, and in the past they've been separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and once they separate, that you, you might be experiencing time very differently than I am. Yes, mm-hmm. it's possible. And... Um, uh, then the only way we could become aware of this, and this is, gets into something that I call uh, dimensional extrapolation, is by being in a third dimension of, of that domain. Yeah. Uh, if we were, then we would be capable of uh, some of the paranormal-type phenomena. That, 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 uh, and now that's a real head-scratcher because we're so accustomed to thinking of time as linear yeah. and, and unidirectional yes. that uh, to talk about, uh, you, you know, like go to 6 o'clock and make a right turn <laughs> <laughs> seems, uh, seems incomprehensible, in, yeah. in, uh, uh, certainly in the English language. Yeah. Well, uh, John Wheeler is interesting in this respect because he showed that actually because of an action taken in the present uh, we change what we can say about what happened in the past mm-hmm. so this is this is really kind of mind-boggling because it kind of it suggests that your past is not fixed in stone mm-hmm. that actually by things being done at the, in the present 
uh, we may actually change our past. Well, there's a whole series of studies in parapsychology known as retrocognitive psychokinesis, yes. uh, in in which uh, one researcher, Helmut Schmidt, in particular, a physicist, mm-hmm. uh, a- attempted to uh, demonstrate that that's exactly what uh, can happen under certain circumstances. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the, we talked about in an earlier conversation. Mm-hmm. We talked about the uh, the double. Slit de, uh, deflated choice yes. experiment, uh-huh. and that actually demonstrates that that we can change something uh, at a certain at a point in in time that actually changes what we can say about what happened in the past, and that's that's rather mind blowing, but totally mind blowing. <laughs> I, I, you know, the double slit delayed choice experiment that we discussed in. Uh, Another interview, um, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Yeah, and we do because in our normal everyday life, Mm -hmm. we we don't believe we're in that kind of a reality. It seems to be very, uh, time seems to be very much something that is unidirectional and so forth. Now, if you go to the third set of these nine dimensions, we're talking, we're, Dr. Neppy and I are talking about consciousness. Now, uh, Dr. Three Neppie, dimensions of consciousness. Yes. In other words, three dimensions of space, three mm-hmm. dimensions of time, three dimensions of consciousness. Yes. That's the nine dimensions of our model. Mm-hmm. And those nine finite dimensions, uh, measurable in some way or another, actually are embedded within a transfinite reality. Which would be like Hilbert space, yes. in a sense. And, and then beyond that, you have infinity. But you've said earlier that the your dimensions are spatial. They are dimensions of extent. Yes. Uh, how do you apply that to consciousness? Uh, well, let's take one step at a time. If you t- apply, think of it in terms of time first. Mm-hmm. There is extent in time. We really can think of it that way. Now, it is uh hard to uh think that the reality is is that way and that's what leads to the kind of things we've been talking about but then if you move to a much more subtle like time the time domain is much more subtle than the the space domain mm-hmm. and then the consciousness domain is even more yeah. it's uh, maybe this is a is a uh, exponential curve of complexity, yeah. in that it's much more subtle and complex. So, uh, if uh, I would, what I would say is that um, uh, we are non-local beings. Mm-hmm. To get back to the word we started with, we're non-local beings in the way we think and act and perceive and even. Uh, our, our awareness is non-local, and uh, as we we move into this, if we at at this point in time, most people at least, and we're evolving beings, we're all changing all mm-hmm. the time. Hopefully, in the right direction, in a in a more um, um, inclusive and more understanding and a greater awareness. But if we uh, if we think of it in this way, then at this point in time, most of us, at least, uh, maybe neglecting a, a few 
strange people that seem to have abilities we don't understand, uh, most of us actually experience in this context of, of uh, the NEPI closed TDVP, experience five dimensions. Because a lot of people will say to us, well, we only experience three. No, actually you experience five because you do experience time, albeit a a quantum of that time, and you do experience consciousness, and it's it's a quantum of that consciousness. So each individual is like a quantum of consciousness. But that quantum is, as I say, it's more complex and subtle. It is expandable. And uh, that's uh, increasingly true as you start from one dimension all the way up to nine. Mm. So the person, uh, a person who has awareness, and there's another concept here that's uh, that might help to uh, illuminate this this idea, and that is that. Uh, Dimension, dimensional domains are nested like the Russian dolls. So that, theoretically at least, if you are, if your awareness has been raised to a particular dimension, you are aware of all of the other dimensions mm-hmm. below that. Just like the average person today, being aware of time enables him to look at space from the point of view of a uh, point or quantum in the time domain, so you're really, in effect, projecting yourself out of of three dimensions in order to see the three dimensions. Mm-hmm. And if this continues on, then uh, this this uh, speaks to the idea uh, going beyond what we think of as physics. But the idea of cosmic consciousness, where a person eventually will evolve to the point where they're aware of all of these dimensions, and that person would be an extraordinary individual. Well, when I think of consciousness in terms of dimensionality, the, the words that come to me would be heaven and hell, being <laughs> the two extremes, in, yeah. in, in, in a sense, of, yeah. of consciousness think, and, and a range uh, along along that parameter. In some ways, we experience both ends of this all the time. In normal life, we are limited to this little cage of the body. We're sort of imprisoned here because we identify with it. And... Uh, Identification and intent. Intent's becoming a popular word, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Of our consciousness, of our little quantum of consciousness, uh, identifies itself with this body and this mind and this spiritual understanding. Uh, My belief is, I call it a belief, as a scientist, I'd say a hypothesis, my hypothesis, which I believe is, is a reasonable one based on things that I can talk about, uh, is that uh, we're progressing in that way, and that as if we arrive at a, at a greater awareness of these nested domains, then we are, that's the way we are progressing and expanding our awareness. And at that point, our our awareness becomes very non-local as soon as we depart from 
even from three, but really, definitely, when we extrapolate ourselves beyond four. Mm-hmm. Well, from the perspective of what is often called cosmic consciousness, it's like uh, everything, all time and all space, exists in in one moment and in in, in one awareness. Yes, that, that would be non-local. Yes, that would be very non-local, and that's. That's what I think is the future of the human race, of consciousness. Uh, our research shows that there's consciousness in everything, and it's developing, and uh, it's spiraling upward toward that overall consciousness awareness of reality. Well, Dr. Edward Close, once again, a very enlightening, informative, uh, and I have to say delightful conversation. Thank you so Thank much you. for being with me. Thank you. You, you ask great questions. <laughs> and thank you for being with us. 